All right, welcome everyone. I am your host, Ashley Grigsby, and I am here today with Dr. Maida Khaled, who is an assistant professor of clinical medicine in the Division of Pediatric Nephrology at Riley Hospital for Children. Welcome. It's great to be here, Ashley. I'm so glad because it's our first renal segment ever, and I know our listeners have been asking for it, so we finally did it. Well, I hope I can make it easy for you. It's sometimes considered one of the more complicated topics, and I'll do my best to break it down and make it as simple as possible. Yeah, all the little glomeruli and all these little parts, I, I've lost all, all <laughs> my ability to figure that out, but we will try and make it easy for our listeners. We are going to start with like a very large topic, and I know it's large, so we're going to make it hopefully not so hard. Acute glomerulonephritis. Sure, that's a good place to start. All right. The boards want us to know kind of how do these patients with acute glomerulonephritis present? So let's start with a basic concept. So acute glomerulonephritis. Acute means it's just happened. Glomerulo means involving the glomerulus of the kidney. And nephritis, so it's the nephron, and itis is inflammation. So when you think about it in your head, you should think that there is inflammation at the level of the glomerulus and the nephron. Okay. Okay. So then if there is inflammation, what sort of things does one see? Well, before you answer that, I'll tell you that nature has given you a really nice canvas, and that canvas is the urine. The urine gives you a snapshot of what is happening at the level of the kidney. The byproducts of inflammation and other things that happen in inflammation, you can sort of see that signature in the urine. So some of the things that you will see then would be, can you guess what that might like be? Like white cell? Exactly. Maybe red cell? Exactly. Right. And then protein. protein. There you go. So that's exactly what you see in these patients. White blood cells, red blood cells, protein in the urine analysis. A lot of times the patients will come to you with the complaint that they're seeing a Coca-Cola colored urine or dark colored urine. Okay. And if the urine is bright red, then you should be thinking more along the lines of a lower urinary tract picture. You can still see white blood cells and red blood cells and occasionally protein in that case. So let's say you have a really bad bladder infection. Uh, but there are a few other things then. So the patient will tell you that they're seeing, you know, dark urine. I always tell them, look, is this bright red or is it more like tea colored or coffee colored? And if it's tea or coffee colored, you know that it's more likely the kidney. If it's bright red and it has clots, then it's not the kidney. Okay, then other things. The patient might say to you, I've noticed swelling around my eyes, you know, or a little bit of... Um, weight gain or belly distension or edema around the legs. Um, and that can happen because you're losing protein. So when you have a nephritis or inflammation at the level of your filtering units, the filtering units can't do their job properly. And one of the things that they might do is lose protein. So your serum albumin is a little bit low, your urine protein is high, and you see all the inflammation at the kidney level. So that is sort of conceptually what will happen. Um, things that you need to look for after, let's say you're in the emergency room or you're in an outpatient clinic and you get somebody who says, I've got dark brown urine um, and puffy eyes and you've done a, you know, you have done a dipstick or you've sent the urine first before you've seen them and you know that there's white blood cells, red blood cells and protein in the urine. The next thing you should be looking for is, is their vitals. So I always look for blood pressure. This is very important. If they have high blood pressure, then be that becomes somewhat urgent. Of course, it's good to know that other vitals are normal, but hypertension is also another pretty common finding. Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. Can we talk about the differential for the causes of glomerulonephritis? The one I know, mm -hmm. and I 
pretty much, this is, I think, the only one I could come up with, is post-strep, <laughs> glomerulonephritis. But I know there are more. Yes. So which, what are the most common? How do you know? Exactly. So there's some nice tricks that I can give you that will help you differentiate. So again, we go back to our situation where we're sitting in the emergency room or you're sitting in clinic. Let's make it the ER room, ER, because you yeah, have more right. time. It's my place. You know? <laughs> I feel good there. And then we can imagine that labs will come back in four hours and you'll still be there and you won't be home. Okay. okay. What I generally do is I send um, complement levels. Okay. Okay. So C3, C4. And then... Just so that you don't have to poke the patient many times, get an ANA, so anti-nuclear antibody. And if your lab will offer it and you're feeling very nifty and you can, then you can also get a double-stranded DNA. Okay. Okay. People will talk about ASO titers, but double-stranded DNA tends to be more specific. So let, let me explain that a little bit more. Um, so you're absolutely right. I'm glad you know about post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis because it's very common. Okay, it's also you can call it um, post-infectious glomerulonephritis, okay. and the reason is that strep is not the only organism that can trigger that sort of a finding. Other things are lupus okay. can give you nephritis, and we have very common thing called IgA nephropathy that can give you inflammation at the level of the kidney. Um, and then you have other rarer conditions that are more fancy, like membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, or you can have a nephritis if you so have you a shunt. A biopsy for? Well, uh, you can have some idea, oh, okay. and I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. Once you narrow things down, a lot of things you'll need to biopsy, and some things you won't. Um, so back to that, so you can have a, a post-infectious nephritis or a shunt nephritis, too. So people who have shunts, VP shunts, they, they can get that. Um, if you have endocarditis, you can get an, a post-infectious nephritis sort of picture or septic emboli, and this, these will be complement consumptive. Okay, so if your C3 is low and your C4 is normal, that's pretty classic for a post-streptococcal nephritis or a post-infectious nephritis. Um, okay. If both your C3 and C4 are low, then you think about lupus because it is a complement consumptive process. Okay. So you're chewing up those complements and they're getting trapped in the kidney. Uh, if none of your complements are low, then you are more likely dealing with IgA nephropathy, where you are not consuming complements as part of the process of the inflammation. And then MPGN is is funny. It can be a low C3, normal C4, occasionally low C3 and low C4. But it's I think we shouldn't talk too much about MPGN, except that you should know that it exists and it can give you an initial clinical picture like post-strep, because uh, that's one of the more, I think, intense renal topics that will make us lose the forest for the trees. Okay, fair. Okay, so so you'll get your compliments, and they'll come back in a couple of hours, and you'll know, you know, okay, this is IgA, or do I consider lupus, or is this post-strep? Mm-hmm. The ANA helps because if it's positive and your C3, C4 are low, then you have to think about lupus. Okay. And then um, your anti-double-stranded DNA is helpful because if that is positive and your C3 is low and your C4 is normal, it's all the more a confirmation that this is a post-strep nephritis. Okay. So C3, only low, probably post-strep. Exactly. C3 and C4 low, maybe lupus or other. Very likely lupus. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Interesting. And normal is IgA. Oh, both normal, probably Mm -hmm. IgA. C3, C4 are both normal. You're dealing with IgA nephropathy. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you're like skipping ahead because I was going to ask you about that later. So (laughs) that's perfect. (laughs) What is the biggest complication from like post-strep nephritis? Well, let me tell you, let's put it this way. So if you're sitting in the ER or you're in clinic and you have to say to yourself, which one are the patients that I'm going to admit to the hospital? Because who are the patients who have a chance of going south very quickly? And there are two things I want you to look at. I want you to look at their creatinine. So, of course, once your urine is back, you want to get a basic metabolic panel and a CBC. 
uh, maybe LFTs depending on the clinical presentation and serum albumin. If your creatinine is high, that patient needs to be admitted because they might be the start of a rapidly progressing glomerulonephritis or another scary glomerulonephritis. We didn't talk so much about Wegner's and good mm. pastures, but all those things can also present with normal complements. Okay. Okay. But generally, these patients have an elevated creatinine and they're very sick looking. It's going to be hard for you to send someone like that home because they'll have other things wrong with them. Um, so admit that patient and then hypertension. hypertension. So okay. high blood pressure, you're going to bring them in because... For a lot of conditions, particularly post-infectious nephritis, the blood pressure can be quite labile. And it can be just slightly elevated or not that horribly elevated in the ER. You admit them and six hours later, it's really high. And Mm -hmm. patients can have seizures or temporary blindness and other complications. kind of things like that. There you go. Exactly. In fact, we had one patient come to the ER with breasts. A couple of hours later, as part of the screening, a urine was done and turns out he had post-infectious nephritis. Oh, interesting. Cool. So... That's what I would say, you know, admit them. Because then you kind of screen them for the most significant complications, which is a rapidly progressing glomerulonephritis or severe hypertension or electrolyte abnormalities, and you'll capture all of that. And then the nephrologist will handle them. All right. I feel like that wasn't that hard. Good. Okay, That's the goal. (laughs) Okay, let's take a second and recap what she just said. If C3 is low and C4 is normal, think post-strep. If C3 is low and C4 is also low, think lupus. So two lows equal lupus. If C3 is normal and C4 is normal, think IgA nephropathy. And double-stranded DNA with a low C3 and a C4 that's normal, this is for sure strep. If the ANA is positive with a low C3 and C4, this is even more indicative of lupus. But if you just remember, C3 low, C4 normal post-strep, both low, lupus, both normal, IgA nephropathy. You should be able to get some points on that. Now let's head back with Dr. Khaled and discuss nephrotic syndrome. And I'm very glad that you bring up nephrotic syndrome right after nephritis because when I look back at my training, I used to always confuse them. I'm like, yeah. Wait, I don't understand. Are they the same? What's going on? It was really hard for me to conceptualize. Okay. So now this one, again, now go into that image in your head and visualize the filtering unit, okay? There is no inflammation. In nephrotic syndrome, your basic one, it shouldn't have inflammation. So if we talk about children, the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome is going to be minimal change disease. So we'll assume that that's what most of our discussion is going to revolve around. And in the end, we'll add a little disclaimers. In minimal change disease, there is no inflammation, but something is wrong with the filtering unit such that they lose a lot of protein. Okay. So everything you see is a problem a because of, there you go, protein okay. loss. Okay. There you go. So the first thing, you know, I think, how do these children present? So I have to tell you that about 95 of them, 95% of them uh, think they have allergies. And they're going because they have puffy eyes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that makes your, sense. Exactly. Uh-huh. So you're losing a lot of protein in your urine. Your serum albumin is dropping. Serum albumin keeps fluid in the intravascular space. So now that your serum albumin is low, albumin acts like a sponge. So pretend that. So wherever the albumin is, the water is going to go. So now that your serum albumin is low, all of that water, that fluid is starting to seep out into the extravascular space. And your eyelids are your one of the thinner skin areas. So it shows up yep, first. Exactly. So you see mm. periorbility. Men, they keep thinking they have allergies, mm. you know, and they're treated for allergies and it doesn't work, doesn't get better till they go to an ER. And almost always in the ER, they'll have a urinalysis and lo and behold, there's three plus protein. Hmm. And there's nothing else on the urine. 
So these patients can also present with overall body edema, belly distension. Very rarely I'll have somebody with an initial presentation of a peritonitis in the ER, you know, abdominal okay. pain, and, and they, they'll have a peritonitis. Um, but when you look at the urine, you see a lot of protein, and you typically don't see casts. Okay. Okay. Whereas in nephritis, you, red blood cells, you do. white you blood, red cells. blood cells, okay, I saw that. Okay. Exactly. So you in nephritis, you think of byproducts of inflammation. Mm-hmm. In nephrotic syndrome, you think just lots protein. and lots of protein loss. Okay. Now, what can happen sometimes? Oh, by the way, going back, so nephrotic syndrome can also have elevated cholesterol. Okay. okay. And I don't want to go into the details of why that happens because that's a bit of a complicated um, discussion but they'll have an elevated cholesterol. So if you're not sure if somebody's nephrotic, you can send that. Now, we can also have a nephrotic picture. So if someone has a lot of inflammation at the kidney level and they're losing a lot of protein in the urine, you can have a nephrotic picture, which means you're getting very puffy and your belly is distending and your hands are swollen and legs are swollen. That can be something that you see, okay? But I think for the purpose of, that's for the purpose of, when you're in the ER and you're in the clinic. If we talk about the purpose of the boards, just categorize them into two very distinct categories, nephritis and nephrotic syndrome. You're not going to get a question that is going to overlap the two. Mm -hmm. What other lab findings do we see in nephrotic syndrome? So low serum albumin, elevated cholesterol if somebody's checked it, um, high urine protein, no white blood cells, no red blood cells. Okay. Is there a cutoff for albumin, how low it has to be to each? Not necessarily because you don't know where on the spectrum you've got them. Okay. You know, okay. they may just be presenting, in which case it's not very low, or they may be spontaneously recovering, in which case it's not very low. So I'm going to throw another disclaimer here for yeah. you. Again, not for the boards, but for the purpose of when you're actually seeing a patient. About 10% of the patients with minimal change disease can have some microscopic hematuria. Okay. Okay. So, but if your clinical picture is, is this child without white blood cells, with very heavy proteinuria, who looks nephrotic, then go with nephrotic. But the, and it's the nephrologist's responsibility to figure out which one it is. And your management at that moment is not going to change. So what is our what is our initial management? Okay, so you're going to break your management down into two categories. One is you're going to treat the symptoms, and the second is you're going to treat the disease. Okay. Okay. Probably minimal change. Exactly. Okay. Well, we presume it's minimal change. So in children, uh-huh. um, we don't necessarily even biopsy them first. So we make oh. the presumption that it's minimal change, and the treatment is is prednisone. Okay. okay, just like two per kilo? Two per kilo. And so when you send them off in clinic, you will put them on prednisone two per kilo. And then, then it's an initial course adds up to about two to three months. Um, oh, wow. And that includes alternate days and mm. so on and so forth. So one thing you want to keep in mind is see if this is a high-risk patient such that you need to do a PPD. Oh. Okay, because you do want to get a tuberculosis screen before you start high dose, before you start prednisone for such oh. a long time. Okay. So if it's someone who is from overseas, you know, a third world country, or has an exposure to people who've been incarcerated or things like that, just have keep that at the back of your mind. Those are the patients you want to do a PPD before you start treatment with prednisone, because if they are uh, high risk for tuberculosis or they have tuberculosis, then that treatment needs to be started. Okay. Um, so you can start prednisone two per kilo, and in general, that is about the extent that you need to know about minimal change because the uh, nephrologist will handle Because we send them to nephrology, it. right? Exactly. The yeah. nephrologist will handle it. Okay. Now, as far as treating the symptoms. So a lot of things are geared towards treating the symptoms because symptoms is what makes the patient uncomfortable. Right. Okay. If they're really edematous, then we admit them sometimes because you need to do IV diuretics and albumin and basics and other things. But if they're not that edematous, we say... A fluid restriction, 
depending on the age and the weight of the child, somewhere between one to two liters a day. And then salt restriction, so about 2,000 to 2,400 milligrams of salt a day. Because the more water you drink, the puffier you'll get. Mm-hmm. And the more salt you drink, the more water you're going to hold on to. Okay. And so it's going to make your edema worse. Okay. Um, so that's the reason behind fluid restriction and salt restriction. And then um, occasionally we will start them on a diuretic. And that can be Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide, depending on the preference of the nephrologist. And this is what the patients will go home on. Okay. What You talked about like peritonitis being mm-hmm. kind of a complication. Mm-hmm. What other complications do we need to worry about? Yes. So we should talk about complications of nephrotic syndrome because these are the patients in which you do see quite a few things. And um, let's talk about infection first. So part okay. of the problem is these patients are immunosuppressed and they're losing, so losing their immunoglobulin. Right? You got it. I can't say the word, but I know it. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So have a low threshold. Get blood cultures if they okay. have a fever. Peritonitis will look like an acute abdomen like an appendicitis, they won't let you touch it, there'll be a lot of rebound tenderness. Um, And other infections, you know, you just have to, I would say, have a low threshold for treating. You know, if if there's, you suspect sinusitis, just go ahead and treat it, and so on and so forth. So they're high risk for infections. They're also at high risk for clots. Mm -hmm. And can you guess why that would be the case? I know this only because I had an adult nephrotic code Mm -hmm. from her PE in my ED. Um, but it's because they lose clotting, they lose the anti-clotting factors, exactly. right? So they are pro-coagulant. Exactly right. Area, yeah. Exactly right. So you are 100% correct. Worry about a clot somewhere. So hepatic vein thrombosis, sagittal sinus vein thrombosis, um, PE. There are places that these patients can clot. So you have to worry about that. Um, so immunizations are important in these patients. So pneumococcal immunization um, is very important. Get them up to date with their flu shots and other things. Yeah. Okay. What are the mimics? That's what they want us to know. Mimics of nephrotic syndrome. Can you think of any? I'm having a hard time with it. I think allergies would be a mimic. Yeah, like you that know. One. Yeah. That someone. I think that if you have a really distended belly and a low albumin, you should think about heart conditions um, because there's some patients. You know, you will mm-hmm. have uh, cirrhosis and you know just cirrhosis, fluid yeah, accumula- right. uh, fluid accumulation in your belly, and these the heart patients can have a low protein from enteric losses of protein and occasionally even proteinuria. So I think you should think about that when okay. patients present. Another thing that I sometimes notice in the ER is I'll get a call, but it turns out like the patient looks like a nephrotic, has no protein in the urine, and they have a protein-losing enteropathy. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, whether that, that can occasionally be a CMV gastritis, can mm-hmm. then that can do that sort of a thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's that. One complication we did not touch on, but I know it's a little bit complicated, but why do they get hyponatremic, so low sodium levels? Okay, so the simplest explanation for that is that when you have a low serum albumin, your body thinks that it's dehydrated because it's you're intravascularly dry. Okay. Right? Because yeah. uh, albumin acts like a sponge and keeps the water inside the blood vessel. When you don't have the albumin, waters are going outside the blood vessel. Your body's thinking it means it's dry. Okay, then when it's dry, it releases ADH. Oh. ADH is supposed to make you hold on to water. So you hold on to water. Free water. So, exactly. So it makes it look like your sodium is low. So, you, you know, it's creating that situation where your serum sodium reads lower. That's one of the speculations of how it might be giving you low sodium. Hmm. Interesting. All mm-hmm. right. What kind of factors make you think that a nephrotic syndrome is going to have a worse prognosis overall? Right. 
So that is a very good question. And I think that leads us into one of the things that is a differential for minimal change disease. And that's, um, it's like evil cousin called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Okay, FSGS. Exactly, it's FSGS. So it's exactly what the name is. There are parts of the kidney and parts of the nephrons that are just sclerosed and dying. So focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. So FSGS like I said, it's an evil cousin and can be harder to treat. There are some patients with FSGS who respond to prednisone, but this is the disease that keeps us up at night. Okay. Okay. The patients that don't respond to uh, prednisone um, have a worse prognosis. This applies even to patients who have minimal change disease. Okay. Okay. I would say just to keep things as simple as possible in your head, think FSGS has a worse prognosis and minimal change patients who do not respond to prednisone have a worse prognosis. Okay. And then um, is there like an age at which you stop calling it, like assuming it's nephrotic syndrome? I know you said in kids we assume, assume, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. stop assuming it's minimal change. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I would say age one year to 10 years, Okay, you're most likely finding is going to be minimal change if a child presents with nephrotic syndrome. Less than one year, you have to think about other conditions in the kidney that might be causing this clinical picture. And greater than 10 years, um, what I do is I tell my patients the option. Look, there is now the chance, it's still quite likely that it will be minimal change, but the possibility of FSGS is there. I still think that the majority of the patients will have minimal change, Mm -hmm. okay? So I tell the patients, you have a choice. We can treat this like minimal change with prednisone and see how you respond, or we can proceed with a biopsy even now. And so we just kind of Mm -hmm. decide from there. Well, so that's, I think, all that we need to know about nephrotic syndrome. Did you have anything else to add for nephrotic? No, I think we're good. I think we hit it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The next thing we're going to talk about is hemolytic uremia, uremia syndrome, uremic syndrome. That's right. H-U-S. That's right. Okay. Which I actually really like. I think it's interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So hemolytic uremic syndrome, as the name name sort of defines it, right? So you have hemolysis, you have low platelets, and you have kidney injury. Okay. Okay. I would break it out into two categories. There's atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, and then you can call it typical hemolytic uremic syndrome or diarrhea positive or shigatoxin-associated hemolytic uremic syndrome. Okay. Atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome is is a complement dysregulation problem in the body. Okay. And that's where I would leave it at. It's fine. Okay. One other thing I would just add there is that recently a medication called eculizumab has come in the market and it has revolutionized the treatment of atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So these children were progressing to end-stage kidney disease, were on dialysis, now actually have perfectly normal renal function. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's what you need to know about AWHUS. It's complement-mediated. It's, you know, sort of an, you can call it autoimmune in a way, but I would say complement dysregulation. Okay, that's the thing you're going to check on the multiple choice question. Okay. All right. Now we're coming to the one that's connected with infections, uh-huh. all right? Like E. coli, O157, exactly, H7. Exactly, exactly. Right. So what you need to know about um, sort of the other, the typical HUS is that it's most commonly associated with E. coli, okay? But other organisms have been described. So you need to be aware that strep pneumo, huh. that has, so what strep pneumo did and E. coli did and Shigella did is they hung out and they shared the E. coli plasmid. Mm-hmm. With All right. Shigatoxin, right. There you go. So the shigatoxin. Mm-hmm. And the E. coli said, here you go. I'm going to pass on something evil to both of you guys. Here you go, strep pneumo, and here you go, shigella. 
and patients can get HUS after strep pneumo, and patients mm. can get uh, HUS after Shigella. Now, Shigella is more commonly found in third world developing countries, so you don't see that as much here. Mm-hmm. And E. coli um, triggered HUS, so it used to be O15787, but now what's scary is that a lot of other strains are emerging as well. And there was a newer strain in the German outbreak oh. around 2011, which was really, really virulent. So typically, HUS is a condition that affects children. Mm-hmm. But that virulent strain was also affecting adults and had a Hodgemeyer mortality. All right, so HUS affects children. Okay. And typically what I would say, you know, based on this, the current literature that we have, um, if somebody has STEC, so shigatoxin-associated... Uh, and Exactly, enterohemorrhagiclitis, most of the patients will have bloody diarrhea, okay? But not all. So keep in mind that about 10-15% might not have or might not report bloody diarrhea, Okay. Out of these patients, about 10 to 15% uh, will go on to get HUS. The incidence is higher. So in children, oh. it's about 10 to 15% will get HUS. So that's quite a, a good a decent number. number yeah. That's a decent number. As children start to improve, and typically, let's say, you know, around like the seventh day of the initiation of their diarrhea, their, their diarrhea is getting better. That's around the time that you start to see the findings of HUS. And what is happening here? So what's happening is that the E. coli are releasing shiga toxin. Mm-hmm. and when they die. Basically, or um, no? yeah, when they die, and even when they're not dead, because oh, okay. it's that plasmid and it's just secreting it, and okay. that shigatoxin is damaging your endothelium. Mm. Okay, and as your endothelium is getting damaged, it's triggering, um, you know, the platelets to come and try to heal that endothelium, and that's causing like red blood cells to shear mm. as they're passing through that mini clot. So you consume platelets, and your hemoglobin drops. It's a hemolytic anemia, mm. and because you have a microvascular thrombosis in the kidney blood vessels, you have. Um, kidney um, involvement in all the patients. Okay, that's where the uremia comes. Exactly. Okay, so you get like low blood, low platelets. Correct. Low hemoglobin. Correct. You probably have a haptoglobin. Is it is consumed, so it's, it's low. Low exactly. haptoglobin. And elevated creatinine and BUN. Mm-hmm. And an elevated LDH. Oh, LDH. So you can oh, send right, that. They're hemolyzing. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And what's the treatment? What's okay. The treatment? So it's very interesting. So about half of the patients with HUS will require dialysis. That's okay? a lot. That is a lot of patients. So these patients need to get admitted. Yeah. Like off the bat. Okay. <laughs> and I've spent many days in the emergency room talking to families and, you know, it, it's a it's an intense time when yeah. they present. I would just admit these patients. Okay. Because the management is pretty intense. And we look for, we look very carefully at the hemolysis do they need red blood cell transfusions? Most patients will need them. And then, you know, one of the things that can happen is as they're hemolyzing, their potassium can go up. So as their mm. kidney is shutting down, that hyperkalemia can be very severe. Oh, yeah. That's right? not good. That's not good. So that's why we try to start them on dialysis. Now, we may not put everybody on dialysis, but patients who are who stop forming urine, so mm. they're anuric or oliguric, we will start dialysis pretty quickly. One of the things that you want to do is you want to avoid giving platelet transfusion as much as possible. Because they just use it up. There you go. Mm. Exactly. And the platelets that are left behind, even though they're small, are quite sticky. So there are a few papers where they've reported you can have a central line insertion or you can have a hemodialysis catheter or a peritoneal dialysis catheter placed without um, high risk of bleeding. Oh, okay. But if somebody's having, you know, a major GI bleed or other things, of course, then you have to, you know, manage that mm-hmm. if platelets have So uh, patients come in, half of them start dialysis, um, and then there are certain complications, so extra renal manifestations of HUS, right? So the, there can be neurological involvement, mm-hmm. so about, you know, 
maybe 20% or so patients can have that. And that can be altered mental status, coma, seizures, strokes. Hmm. And the neurological involvements are the ones that really like keep us up at night. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, usually with strokes or severe strokes, there is a mortality. So there is in the literature anywhere from 3 to 5% mortality associated with this condition. Pretty high. Pretty high. Uh, pretty high. Yeah. Especially these for diarrhea, patients. you know, <laughs> you're like not thinking it was anything. There you go. Yeah, exactly, oh. exactly. So the neurological com- uh, complications can be pretty devastating. And then other things, you can have a hepatitis-like picture because of the thrombotic microangiopathy. So imagine like all the tiny blood vessels everywhere in the organs are being affected. So it's not just the kidney, right? So that's why you can have seizures and brain involvement because of the thrombotic microangiopathy. Um, and some people speculate maybe even because of direct sugar toxin effects or hypertension and electrolyte abnormalities mm-hmm. and uremia, everything that sort of comes uh-huh. together in that patient. There can be a pancreatitis, amylase lipase elevation. People say about four to five-fold elevation, we would consider mm-hmm. pancreatitis. Uh, believe it or not, insulin-dependent diabetes um, can occur because you just don't form your insulin then because you're having the same, you know, the pancreas mm-hmm. is getting affected. Um, and that can be in the acute setting or even in the chronic setting. Um, and then mm-hmm, GI involvement can be pretty intense, right? Because you've got the E. coli, mm-hmm. you've got like the bad bowel, you know, your bowels have been affected mm-hmm. because of that. So hemorrhagic colitis can be seen, toxic megacolon or ischemic, uh, ischemic <laughs> gut, right? Yeah. You know, so if your child is, if, is having abdominal distension or increasing abdominal pain, then consider getting surgery involved to take a look at that because there are reports of patients needing parts of the bowel resected. And then in long term with the gut, you can have stricture formation or, you know, adhesions, everything that happens after a bowel inflammation. A cardiac dysfunction has been described as well, mm-hmm. you know, so low ejection fraction or, um, again, the thrombotic microangiopathy and some ischemic injury to the heart, the troponin elevation. Yeah. That has been described in this condition as well. So you just kind of have to, as you manage them on the inpatient side, keep an eye out for all those things. But I think for the purpose of the boards, I would say just keep it, just remember how these patients present, you know, mm-hmm. hemolysis, low platelets, and kidney abnormalities, all because of the consumptive process. So there is no treatment for it, unfortunately. You just kind of support them through it, hopefully. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Their treatment is supportive at this time well you've scared me enough on that one that I'm like never going to eat anything at a picnic ever so again you'll be fine but it's my son will yeah no no picnic ever yeah. no meat yeah no, so it is fine. endrofecal right mm-hmm. so but it's not just meat so we traditionally associated HUS yeah, right? to be from ground yeah. beef but now there are reports of spinach or flour I, I mean mm-hmm. you know the one you make cake batter with great and the kids had licked the cake batter while they were making them at home and they'd gotten the HUS so fruits and dairy products and all of those things. And what are you going to do? You yeah, we can't. We just got to life. just get over it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, we have one more topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to like it. HSP, which I cannot say it. Henoch Shonlin Purpura. Yeah. I, that, the, you know, little special asterisks on the O screws me up. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do these present? I mean, we all know the rash, but we can talk about the yeah. rash and yeah. how do they present and and most, I really want to know, like, who can I send home? Who can be dealt with as an outpatient who needs to be admitted? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm glad you bring up it, HSP after HUS. Because when you think of the mnemonics, they're pretty confusing, yeah, they're just right? close, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, which one, what? HSP is a vasculitis. Okay. So when you look at the picture in your head and you think of what is HSP, you think of these tiny blood vessels getting inflamed. Okay. okay. And that is exactly what you see in the rash. So when you look at the skin and you see these purple blobs, 
that's your tiny little blood vessels that are getting inflamed, okay? So the rash classically will present on weight-bearing areas. So that's why your lower legs, oh. um, your legs, and the buttocks are involved, okay? Mm-hmm. But if somebody was doing handstands, like, more than half the day, it would be their arms and their, you know, okay, yeah, that yeah. would be it. Okay, so these are weight-bearing. They will have, they may or may not have joint involvement, so arthritis. And okay. it's very important to remember it's a polymigratory arthritis. So that means your elbow can be involved, and then two hours later, the elbow looks fine, and then your wrist it's is swollen, true. okay? Then your wrist, two hours later, it's fine, and your knee is swollen. So that should, you know, when you're looking at that patient, think in your head, okay, I got to think of HSP. It's pretty scary when you look at it, actually. Then uh, these patients can also have abdominal pain um, mm-hmm. and abdominal involvement. And that is because the small blood vessels lining your intestine are, can be involved. Um, and, of course, kidney involvement, right? Yeah, that's so, why we're here, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, And because kidney is it's just this big balloon uh-huh. of tiny blood vessels that are supposed to clean up your blood, you have swelling there. And, again, think back when we first talked about nephritis. Um, and we talked about IgA nephritis. So mm-hmm. HSP nephritis and IgA nephritis look the same on biopsy. Oh, right. Okay. The things that that is different is in IgA, these patients don't have skin lesions and joint involvement and other okay. things. Okay. But in, in HSP, they have a vasculitis. So other systems are also in, involved. So from the renal standpoint, the biopsy findings are the same. So you talked about, you know, who do you admit, who do you send home, and so on and so forth. So, you know, sometimes you might have to admit patients because their stomach pain is very severe, and those are the patients I would talk to the gastroenterologist, but they'll do some pulse steroid and things like mm-hmm. that. And maybe um, they have intussusception. Intussusception, exactly, or really bloody stool, and all of those things. Um, from the renal standpoint, the same rules are going to apply that you applied in a nephritis patient. Elevated creatinine and hypertension. Okay. Bring them in. Okay. Okay? Um, because those are the patients we will biopsy. So oh. That's such a nice rule to have. Uh-huh. High creatinine, high blood pressure, bring them in. Okay. The other is you tell your PCP to follow them. Okay. So even if you see a patient with HSP who doesn't have kidney involvement, we recommend that for the first two months after presentation, you get a weekly urine analysis. Oh, wow. And then for the subsequent four months, get a monthly urine analysis. Because a high likelihood of kidney presentation in the first two months and then still possible that they will present in the next, uh, you know, within six months. After six months, you're not unlikely that they're going to have kidney involvement. What are you looking for on the urine? Same thing. Protein? Yes. Red cells? Yes. White cells? There you go. Okay. Yeah. And then if... And your complements are going to be? Normal. There you go. Oh, okay. All right. What do you do if those do... Like, let's say Mm -hmm. they look fine. They have Mm -hmm. nothing in their urine, and Mm -hmm. I've decided they have HSP. Mm Mm-hmm. They go home. I send them home, whatever. They get their labs every week. What do you do once they, now they have a bunch of protein? Right. So we typically, what I will do as a, so I will see them as a kidney doctor and I will do a kidney biopsy. Okay. Okay. And you biopsy because you need to know what is the degree of kidney involvement here. Okay. Does this patient need treatment or not? Treatment is anybody's guess. Okay. Everybody is treating patients a little bit differently, but everyone agrees that it involves some sort of immunosuppression. Okay. Okay. So that would be in the form of prednisone or other immunosuppressive agents because what is it? It's inflammation. So it's the body fighting, you know, it's your own mm-hmm. white blood cells that are overactivated and doing things you don't want them to do. So you got to suppress them. Okay. So we biopsy to determine what kind of treatment we're going to do. And we do treat quite a few patients. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So otherwise the PCP can handle it. Exactly. And they're very good at this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've never had to do it in my clinic, but like... Mm-hmm. I think we are spoiled because we have you guys around. Yeah, yeah. But well, or the general pediatricians are good that they do that. Yeah, they just handle it. They handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. You'll tell the patient, 
the same things for nephritis. Like I would say, you know, if your gross material is getting a lot worse, mm-hmm. or if you're getting extremely swollen, your eyes are puffy, or your belly is getting distended, you know, or you haven't peed for 12 to 24 hours, those would be things to, to say, come back to the ER for. Are there any lab tests that you, like, if someone comes in with that rash, are there lab tests I should get besides the urine and the creatinine? Compliments. Compliments. Because you don't know what if it's a weird lupus. Yeah, that's true. Or what if it's like a rickettsial disease and then they're having like a weird, you know, strange nephritis or they're like hemorrhaging in their urine because they got rickettsia and their platelets are low. So you don't know. So get compliments. It's a pretty safe thing to do. Okay. Yeah. And a CBC. All right. That seems easier than I thought it was. It is. I'm glad. (laughs) So I think that's it. Thanks for coming. Thanks for, you know, being on the show and helping us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.